Welcome to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. Today's podcast is a recording of a talk given by Professor Simon Elliott from the University of London. And this talk was given during a conference on Wednesday, October the 24th, 2012, titled Progressing Book History and Publishing Studies as Disciplines. The purpose of this event was to discuss and agree a set of objectives that would enable us to further progress publishing studies as an established field of research and teaching. Professor Simon Elliott's talk is titled Shaping a Discipline, the Experience of Book History. Well, when Sally first contacted me about this conference, she gave me a very useful briefing note, which, if she'll forgive me, I'll just quote from. The purpose of this short one-day meeting is to identify ways in which the burgeoning areas of book history and publishing studies may become further established as disciplines for teaching and research. In truth, book history is already well established. It's publishing studies that would benefit from a review of where we are, where we want to be, and what initiatives would progress the field. To begin with, I I was most encouraged. I quite enjoy talking to colleagues about book history. And uh, I'm interested to learn more about developments in publishing studies, almost like inviting the ancient mariner to talk about his latest cruise. (laughs) Um, But the more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that Sally's views of book history were encouragingly optimistic, uh, at least from what viewed from one practical angle. However, I can understand the optimism, and viewed from another angle, it's entirely justified. So I'm going to start from that position, as it were, the positive view of book history, and then perhaps at the end raise one or two uh, what I I find slightly troubling questions. I should say, this brief survey of the field is both arbitrary and personal, and I must apologise to anyone or any project that I don't mention, because clearly I've got a, a short amount of time Uh, and I can't cover the whole thing. Book history in the UK and in many other English-speaking countries has come a long way since the 1970s. I recall turning up to a conference uh, at Worcester College in Oxford in the early 80s, organised by Asa Briggs, who was at that time writing the history of Longmans. In conversation with Ian Willison and Michael Turner and David McKittery, the idea emerged that we should create a small research group uh, of interested parties to work on what was later to be known as book history. We called it the Book Trade History Group because we thought that's what we were studying. Um, It was small, compact, we know had more than about 100 members. It produced a reasonably regular newsletter and took, I think, a very important initiative it, uh, it asked Alexis Whedon and later Mike Bott to produce the first location, uh, archive location register, which, as the earlier speakers have mentioned, is a critical tool in the development of any archive-based subject, and clearly book history is such. BTHG was also useful because within it, it assembled a number of people who, under the leadership of Don McKenzie, David McKittrick and Ian Willison formed the editorial board uh, of which became the Cambridge History of the Book in Britain, a very ambitious seven-volume project (coughs) which is now coming to its end. One tends to think of Cambridge histories as being rather magisterial, of being histories of subjects that are fully mature and are able, as it were, to look uh, retrospectively 
and give some comprehensive summary of what has been going on for the last 50 or 100 years. The Cambridge history of the book uh, in Britain was not like that at all. It was written uh, by people who were in the process as well of defining the subject. I don't think anyone working on the Cambridge history would claim it's going to be definitive, uh, but it is interesting. You can see, as it were, the subject emerging as the history progressed. It was a self-defining process. Of course, we were not the first. The French were already in the field and almost completed uh, their first uh, multi-volume history, done with an appropriate Gallic panache. But we were a clutch of Anglo-Saxon sceptics, and that made things much more difficult. However, it emerged and is emerging, and seems to have stimulated, well, I'm not putting it down entirely to Cambridge history, I, the, the French history certainly was an effective influence also, but it seemed to create a chain reaction. So we got a, a, a considerable number of national histories of the book that, on the whole, followed on from the original Cambridge uh, history of the book in Britain. Uh, I'll mention just a few. We've got the Cambridge, uh, the, or the history of the book in the USA, history of the book in Canada, History of the book in Scotland, history of the book in Ireland, all these are multi-volumes. We've had a history, uh, a volume of the history of the book in Wales, uh, planned, but I never think actually executed, a multi-volume history of the book in Germany since 1870. We've had a history of the book in Australia, and we've had a book on books and print in New Zealand. But not just general national histories, uh, but more specific ones. For instance, we've seen in the last 15 years the emergence of the Cambridge History of Libraries in three volumes, uh, edited, generally edited by Peter Hoare. David McKittrick has completed his three-volume history of uh, Cambridge University Press, and Asa Briggs has finally published his history of Longmans. And I hope in the next year or two that we will see the uh, publishing of the history uh, of OUP in what will eventually be four volumes. The first three volumes are due out at the end of next year, the fourth volume probably a year or so later. So very rapidly we've had an extraordinary expansion of formal and informal histories of various nation states and their books. Uh, in some ways this is inevitable, it's a one way of getting money. For instance, it's been very difficult, I suspect, to do book history in Canada seriously if you couldn't engage a very powerful sense of nationalism mm. and by doing so release quite a considerable amount of funding. But of course, there's something very perverse in a national history of the book because books are not, in some ways, national products. They are, as, as uh, has been commented on very frequently, um, by Don Mackenzie, certainly. They're promiscuous beasts of books. They go everywhere, and they move across uh, boundaries, and indeed, the history of the book in Africa is about books moving all the time, moving in, moving out, moving around. So I think one of the enormous gaps that sometime we're going to have to fill seriously is the international history of the book, the book, as it were, as a promiscuous object. What supported uh, in this country and elsewhere uh, this extraordinary expansion of formal histories? I think there are a number of factors. Already the importance of archives has been mentioned, and I think I must reinforce that. In the 1970s and 80s, the University of Reading began to collect publishers and printers and booksellers' archives. So, I think as acquisition of the 
British Empire. It was done in a sort of fit of absent-mindedness. I don't think people intended to create a subject. It was basically the work of a department of typography and the work of a department of English. And they were both interested in, in publishers and printers. But it was from very specific and different, uh, uh, different subjects that they approached this. But these things were accumulated quite rapidly. And within 10 to 15 years, Reading was a substantial centre. We had the deposit of the Penguin Archives in Bristol, the deposit of the Macmillan Archives in the British Library and Reading, the Murray Archives in Edinburgh. And recently, I'm delighted to say, we finally got the W.H. Smith Archives um, uh, into the University of Reading. And that's going to be extremely important because what it, it looks at, of course, is not just publishes. It looks at book distribution. And if one thing that is seriously underrepresented in, in book history, and that is the way the books get out and the books are sold. How many decent histories are there of book distribution or book selling? And yet, actually, that's the critical thing we're all interested in. It's not just printing the damn things. It's getting them out and selling them and getting someone to read them. That's really critical. And yet we have done very little work on this. Um, associated with these deposits of art, were the uh, rather interesting series of uh, microfilm and microfiche series that Chadwick Healy produced, which meant that for certain archives, I think of the Bentley archives in the British Library, for instance, they became available to scholars who couldn't get into the British Library. Admittedly, they were very expensive, but if you were within travelling distance of a reasonably well-heeled uh, university or research library, you had much more access than would have been the case a few years previously. So the creation, the deposit of archives, the making them more accessible through various forms of microform publishing, very important. And of course, there are parallels across the channel. EMEC, uh, in, first in Paris and, and, and later in Normandy, has been a critical factor in uh, raising the consciousness, articulating the nature of 20th and 21st century French publishing. Associated with the development of, as it were, an archival self-consciousness, part of it really, the creation also, I've mentioned these before, of archive location registers. The Whedon Bot register for the UK, the Albinsky list for the USA, now available both on the Sharp website, and the Canadian Publishers Records database, to, to mention just three. three. Now, similarly, uh, as archives became more available and accessible, we observed, a few years later admittedly, the growth of online resources, uh, the British Book Trade Index, Sapphire, the Reading Experience Database. That's another important source, though somewhat later. The creation of journals, publishing history in 1977, the Victorian Periodicals Review, book history coming later out of Sharp. Linked to that, and I've mentioned Sharp, I might as well go on to that, is the emergence of scholarly societies. The book trade history group I've mentioned. Sharp, which Jonathan Rose and I first discussed in 1991 and actually launched in 1993. Uh, there's a textbook colloquium, now really defunct, but a very important source of information about educational publishing. Uh, the earlier speakers, I think, quite properly and, and, and not importantly, mentioned education. 
one of my really serious concerns, it's a concern with Sharp, is book history's concentration on literature. If you go to any Sharp conference, my guess is 90% plus of the papers delivered would be about literature in one form or another. Historically, perhaps that's pretty well inevitable, given a lot of book historians emerged from literature departments. But I think it is a serious constraint on the subject. After all, it's not dealing with the books that make publishers most money most of the time. Uh, we ought, as book historians, be addressing educational publishing in all its forms. We certainly ought to be addressing science, technology, engineering, and medicine, which is an enormously profitable area of, of publishing and distribution. And my God, I know one or two people work on it, but what about the explosion of cookery books in terms <laughs> of, of, of market share? Uh, so that's, that's an aside, but I think there are, there are problems in uh, Anglophone book history uh, at, at the moment. Uh, scholarly societies tend themselves to generate additional events which concentrate interest and focus interest. The Panizzi lectures, for instance, from the British Library, the first uh, uh, given by Don Mackenzie, who again promoted the idea of, of, of the idea of a great national history uh, based on the sociology texts. There are the Myers-Harris annual conferences in London, often dealing with, with 16th and 17th century materials. And of course, there are the sharp annual conferences I've mentioned before. And something we developed a, a few years ago, the idea of specialist conferences. We actually had one in, in South Africa, uh, that dealt with interesting trade relationships between, say, South Africa and India. These various tributaries flowed together and created a rich and responsive research network. But that was not enough, because what we needed to do was, as it were, train the next generation. Where were the next generation of book historians to come from? So the creation of teaching courses is, I think, a very important and interesting development over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, the Rare Book School, um, set up originally in Columbia by Terry Bellinger and then moved down to Charlottesville in Virginia, has been extraordinarily important in creating short, normally week-long courses to which librarians and, and, and special collections librarians and book historians could go. It was a focus. And it also, of course, accidentally, brought a lot of book historians as teachers together. And one should never underestimate the importance of, as it were, the informal network. That's what Sharp is, is actually really good at. It's good at the coffee breaks. Because that's where people actually start talking to each other and create much more interesting things than they're actually delivering papers on. Um, that was true of RBS. Uh, in 1995, we set up the MA in the history of the book in London. And a couple of years later, Edinburgh did very much the same sort of thing. From 2007 onwards, we've, we've imitated uh, the Rare Book School in Charlottesville and we've created the London Rare Book School. But that has a much more book history emphasis, whereas RBS, the original RBS, is, is, is more focused on, uh, on, on rare book librarianship. <coughs> we've, 
We shouldn't forget undergraduate courses, though they are relatively few and far between. There are certainly courses that have book history elements in them, in the OU and in Reading, and certainly in both US and Canada, various minor courses in, in PhD programs uh, uh, are book historical in nature. And a way of supporting this teaching initiative, we've had the generation of a host of useful text and reference books. Finkelstein and McClear's Introduction to Book History and Book History Reader, The Blackwell Companion, The Oxford Companion to the Book, and Alexis Whedon's monumental anthology for Ashgate. But all this actually has been done on a shoestring. And that's rather heroic. <coughs> but anything done on a shoestring is inevitably, to mix metaphors, shallow-rooted and vulnerable. And I think that's part of the Book history looks like, sounds like, a solid academic empire whose activities have spread across the world and whose printed monuments are visible in many countries. It is an empire, I think, but I fear it may be more like a British than a Roman empire. <laughs> to an extent, book history's success, well, like Britain's success in building an empire, was a product of a sleight of hand. Let me try and illustrate this by one simple question. How many of those who would describe themselves as book historians or working within book history have a job that has book history in its description? There are a couple of professors, Richard Gameson uh, and me. Richard Gameson, Durham. There are a few lecturers, but the rest are in literature or history departments or in departments of information studies or publishing studies. When most of us leave or retire, most of our institutions have no obligation to appoint a new book historian. When I left Reading, they did appoint, appoint a new professor, but it was in English poetry, not in book history. That may reflect on me. Most, but not all of us, lead as book historians relatively isolated lives. Few universities have more than a handful of self-defining book historians, and many institutions have just one. When they leave, book history may leave with them. I think there's only one institution in this country that has well, a history of continuity in book history, and that's the OU, uh, where we've had three generations uh, of book historians appointed, one after the other. But that is relatively rare. When I get someone applying to me to do a PhD in book history, I'm inclined to warn them off. Uh, what will you do with it? Uh, do you really want to teach at university? And if so, do you think you're going to get a job in book history? Uh, it's a way of qualifying yourself out uh, of a job. And I always say to my students who are determined to take a PhD, and I'm pleased to take them, uh, always keep a second string to your bow. Always stick with literature or stick with history. So book history becomes value-added. You've got an extra thing to offer, but offer it exclusively, and you are in I think, serious trouble. Now, publishing studies strikes me as being quite different. For one reason, it has a very strong and perfectly proper vocational element to it. Most of those who take a degree in publishing do so, and again, our, our first speakers mentioned this, with the reasonable hope of getting a job in the industry. Book history, being a pure academic subject, has no such offer to make. Given that you're offering the chance of a desi desirable career to many, you're likely to recruit larger numbers per year 
than most book history courses. We in London uh, usually recruit about eight students to our MA. It's partly because it's so expensive to live in London, but it's mostly to do with the fact we can't offer any possibility of a job afterwards. And that's the reason why a lot of our students are not newly graduated. They're often middle-aged, they've often got jobs, and they're coming in for wholly different and very admirable reasons, but they're not, they're not career reasons. Because you attract students, some of whom perhaps are being funded or partly funded, you represent, as publishing studies, an attractive investment for your host university because you are making money for it. This means that the university will be more inclined to invest in you and provide you with perhaps a little more, few more staff. Not enough, I'm sure, but large enough group that might constitute a unit or a sub-department or even a department. This means that publishing studies have a better chance of institutional continuity, something that book history cannot currently aspire to. Right, I'm coming to the end. Book history's expansion was based on research. How far should publishing studies development be based on research? If it is to be based on research, what type? Sociological, psychological, or historical? Or, more likely, a combination of all three and probably add a few more disciplines as well. If it's going to be partly historical, and I hope it is, then we need to find better ways and more ways of getting publishing history and book history to work together. This might be helped if book history changed. Now I'm going to present a very heretical proposal. I've mentioned already that too much book history is still concerned almost exclusively with literature. We need to expand book history, to take education and STEM at least. So we need to expand our territory and our subject matter, but we need to do more than this. My particular interest is the late 18th and 19th, early 20th century. I am horribly conscious whenever I undertake a piece of research that I cannot explain the book or the newspaper or the pamphlet and how frequently book historians ignore the newspaper and the pamphlet and all the ephemeral stuff that actually provides a context for the book. I cannot, without actually understanding and explaining, for instance, the impact that Macadam and Telford had on the creation of roads along which mail coaches could run with a degree of consistency uh, and reliability that hadn't happened before. That transforms the newspaper industry. It actually also creates W.H. Smith. But more dramatic, oh, it also changes reading experience. The reading is done you know, in 20-minute in breaks when you're changing horses every 10 or 12 miles in an inn. Byron did a lot of that. But that pales into insignificance when you start thinking of the impact of the railways on the way books and newspapers are transmitted and received and consumed. Um, I remember working uh, in the archives of a uh, late 19th century literary agent, A.P. Watt, and I was struck that when I got to the 1880s, early 1890s, the number of telegrams <coughs> in the archives increased extraordinarily. 
and I became aware that what Watt was doing was using the international telegraph system to coordinate copyright and the release or the non-release of certain texts at certain times to, say, the Australian newspaper market. Now, these things are critical to an understanding of how and why books, newspapers, everything else get out or don't get out or get out at a certain time, such as two weeks later, uh, and are consumed, and the environments in which they are consumed. Well, to, to cut things short, I don't think book history is a big enough subject. That's an outstandingly, extraordinarily silly thing to say in some ways, because it's already enormously big. I've mentioned it resembles the empire. But there are certain subjects that need to actually increase even further in order to be coherent. And I think book history is one of those. I think unless we seriously understand and incorporate what I've called, for want of a better phrase, the history of communication into book history, we are never going to be able to explain it. It's never going to be coherent. And it's never going to exist in the real world uh, clearly and properly. So my argument would be to incorporate all those things into book history and turn it into the history of communication. If one does that, then, as I've suggested, the interest in distribution, the interest in <coughs> selling, the interest in the way in which things move to a reader and the circumstances in which the reader consumes becomes of principal importance. And these are surely the things that publishing studies are forever engaged with. Now, I'll end by simply suggesting that at least I'm doing my best to try and move at least my work in that direction. Three projects actually underway or are planned. One, we took over the Museum of Writing a couple of years ago. This is really a, an astonishing collection of writing implements and writing surfaces and texts of a variety of sorts from pre-cuneiforms, so we're talking about 4th millennium BC, through to the ballpoint pen. And what we are doing is incorporating this physical collection of artefacts into our teaching. We've got to get our people who are, for instance, working on uh, the papyrus book to understand the nature of papyrus, the problems of production, the problems of storage uh, and of being a librarian where all you've got are rolled up papyri. Uh, is extraordinarily important. We're also about to talk about the pen during the Industrial Revolution and the transformation of handwriting uh, that happened between 1780 and, and 1900 is really quite extraordinary. That's one thing. History of Oxford University Press, I've mentioned before, we have found it absolutely essential in volumes three, cover the period 1890. 1970, volume 4, 1970 to 2004, to engage publishers. Um, we simply didn't have the academic skills or experience to cover uh, 20th and early 21st century production. We just don't have enough specialists in that area. So we were very happy to welcome a lot of practitioners, a lot of publishers, some of whom are still publishing, some of whom are in publishing studies. And they have invigorated and enlivened, I think, those volumes. And they've given a, an alternative perspective. So we are working hand in glove with publishing studies, and I'm delighted uh, to record that. The final thing I should say is we, uh, in London, are hoping 
to start work on a major research project, if we can get the funding, on the Ministry of Information, uh, as it functioned between 1939 and 1945. And if you wanted any vivid example of book history raised to the power of communication history, the MOI is a perfect example. It sits there at Senate House with an extraordinarily complicated web of communications. Producing books, yes. Producing pamphlets, yes. Affecting newspapers, censoring things. But also producing films, producing photographs, producing posters, producing travelling exhibitions. All that, it seems to me, is part of our remit. And if we can get book history to ratchet itself up, difficult, I know, pulling itself up by its own bootstraps, then we have, I think, a very powerful subject that will be able to talk to publishing studies much more directly on many more levels and engage with a multitude of subjects uh, which are central to publishing studies and ought to be central to the history of communication.